Hi, nerds. I'm Michael Moore, hosting this podcast for Dissecting Popular IT Nerds. I'm here with Brian Romano, Director of Technology Development at the Arthur G. Russell Company Incorporated. Hi, Brian. How's it going? Not too bad. How about yourself? I'm doing pretty good. I, I have to say that as I was trying to type your name, um, my hands got a little tired because Brian Romano is short, but all the letters after your name, AS, BS, MS, MBA, uh, PhD, I, I, I was just, I, I, my fingers cramped up and I couldn't keep going. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I I do have I ha- I have to say I have five college degrees. Um, I started um, early on in my career, 1980. I started as a junior in high school. Uh, I went to the University of Hartford and got an associate's in '83, and rolled the credits over right away and started in the double E program. Kind of stopped short there. Um, when my I have four kids. When my oldest daughter was approaching uh, school age, I uh, being very competitive and always been an athlete my whole life. I, I couldn't be beat. So I, I went back to school and finished my bachelor's, <laughs> fell in love with, and I did it in a way that married with what I do for a living. So it, it, it flowed together nicely, got my bachelor's, rolled into my master's in a, uh, applied computer science. And again, I was always a means to an end. I, I did it to figure out the next link in industry and what I needed to do to get there. So that was my master's. Then I went for my MBA. In between all that, I owned a company for 16 years, so I wanted to be a better boss and figure out how things are. But the MBA also had a data analytics component, which has helped me focus on a lot of the things in today's industry. And finally, uh, PhD. Uh, my my, I just um, got my oral dissertation, uh, my defense, I'm sorry, my defense of my oral dissertation last Wednesday before Thanksgiving, um, passed that, and... Uh, Got the official okie dokie on on the PhD. So again, that's a means to an end. Technology and innovation is the uh, concentration on that. So really, here should I be calling you Doctor Brian Romano? Uh, you, you can, but you don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, you you took all that uh, all that. You you get to say Doctor Brian Romano. I love. <laughs> um, no, I that that's fantastic. Um, what a uh, um, what a learned scholar you are. um it's time for our uh our icebreaker segment uh we call random access memories um i ask a question and you respond with the answer that comes to your head first uh your first question if you could design a virtual reality world specifically for it professionals what features would you include uh ai for sure Um, (laughs) (laughs) requirement now yeah exactly um uh let's see um boy that's a good one um there are so many hands-on things inside the the uh the it world how do you make it virtual to where you don't have the hands-on side um (laughs) um i i i i I don't know you got me stumped uh on that one sorry no i like it um uh no you got a good point though it's actually a really good uh, a really good kind of a stumped question, right? Because you're saying, okay, take some, uh, take a, you're creating a virtual reality world for IT professionals. And then you're like, hey, let's include all the uh, um, things that IT would like. And all of a sudden it's like, uh, you know what I would put in there? I'd put a cloud. Yeah, okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it has to be, right? Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yep. That's, we'll add that. So now we've got a cloud 
and uh um, and we've got yours yours as well the uh, uh so we got something so we're it's a start brian it's a start maybe i'll continue this question with other people and we'll just keep adding to the list there you go <laughs> um all right here's the second one in a futuristic it themed movie who would be the hero who would be the villain and what <laughs> technologies would they use to battle each other oh the first thing that came to mind i'm sorry to say is um terminator <laughs> <laughs> that's a good one though yeah i'll yeah, take that arnold I'll over there that. with being the bad guy i mean <laughs> and it's got the whole ai content part of it you know it's um <laughs> so who would be the hero um let's see they could either be uh matt damon or tom cruise <laughs> okay all right all right um maybe elon musk <laughs> oh boy you're gonna spark some comments for that oh <laughs> uh, and what technology um boy that's that's a good one again it would be uh first of all um futuristic it would be uh time travel you'd have to have that element part of it Ooh. Ooh, um, okay and um i mean in in the real world again you would have the whole um fiber optic led uh networking and things like that but also again with the whole I, I keep using the word AI and I apologize, but I mean, there's so many different aspects. There's the, the language part of it. There's for the chat GPT. There's the process part of it, the time series data. There's in part of my world, there's, um, image, um, image acquisition and processing for the AI. So there's th three different aspects of AI for there. So it, it, it's all about math at that point, quite honestly. So, but that's the futuristic part. Wow. Holy, you, you, that was a lot. <laughs> so um, I've, I've been giving you some loaded questions here. I'll give you an easier one. All right. This, was, this one's easier. Uh, if IT processes had their own music genre, what would it sound like? <laughs> Smooth jazz. <laughs> you know, I, you know, I, that's funny because I was looking at it. And I was like, I was, I was back and forth. I was like, is it going to be a, like a techno? Is it going to be, you know, uh, um, just, because I was all, you know, I was thinking earlier on, I'm like, earlier on, it could be that, um, you know, almost like techno when you had the AOL connection, yes. right? Yes. Uh, but no, smooth jazz, man. It's like, get Kenny G up in here, right? <laughs> now, now, that's not part of my personality. I'm classic rock all the way. But when you said that, the first thing that came to my mind is, is an IT guy sitting at a computer with the headphones on, kind of mellow, just making things happen. But I like it. No, that's good stuff. But you know, every, I think I think you're right, and I think I would just interject. Probably smooth jazz with the occasional like uh, uh, like heavy metal, like uh, out of nowhere, right? <laughs> Waking people up. <laughs> yeah, right. And that would just happen right in the middle of the night. <laughs> hey guys, this is Phil Howard, founder of Dissecting Popular IT Nerds. I just want to take a few minutes to address something. It has become fairly apparent, I'm sure all of you will agree, over the years that slow vendor response, vendor response times, vendors in general, the, the average is mediocre. Support is mediocre. Mediocrity is the name of the game. Not only is this a risk to your network security, because I've seen vendors on numerous occasions share sensitive information, but there's also a direct correlation to your budget and your company's bottom line. 
Not to mention the sales reps that are trying to sell you and your CEO and your CFO on a daily basis. That causes a whole nother realm of problems that we don't have time to address. Our back office program at Dissecting Popular IT Nerds, we've put together specifically for IT leadership, and it's on a mission to eliminate this mediocrity. And the best part is that we're doing this in a way that will not cost your IT department a dime. So if you'd like us to help you out, get better pricing, better support, and jump on pressing issues in minutes, not days, then contact us now so we can get on a, a call with you and conduct a value discovery session where we find out what you have, why you have it, and where you want to go and how we can improve your, your life, your IT department, and your company's bottom line. What you're going to end up with is, number one, just faster support from partners who care about your organization's uptime and bottom line. And because you're going to be able to access our $1.2 billion in combined buying power, you'll be able to benefit uh, significantly from historical data. And on top of that, you'll also benefit from the skills of hundreds of on-demand experts that we have working behind the scenes that are all attached to our back office support program. So if you'd like, again, none of this is ever going to cost you a dime. At the very least, it's going to open your, your eyes to what's possible. Let our back office team provide you the high-touch solutions and support that your IT team deserves so that you can stop calling 1-800-GO-POUND-SAND for support. Now, if you're wondering, what does this apply to? This applies to your ISPs, your telecom providers, all your application providers, whether you're a Microsoft shop or a Google shop, what you might be paying for AWS, even Azure, co-location space, any of those vendors that you're paying a monthly bill to, we can help you with. Hey, it's Greg, the Frenchman secretly managing the podcast behind the curtain. To request your one-on-one -on -one call, contact us at internet at popularit.net. And remember, it will never cost you a dime. Well, you know, you, you said something really interesting um, uh, when you were back there. You were talking, you said, you know, you apologize for using AI. And you, it's funny because so many people use it now. And it, it's it's come up as a recurring theme on this podcast over and over and over. And uh, it, to the point where people are like, I know I keep using it. I know I keep using it. But, you know, I thought about this the other day, and I think I know why it keeps popping up, um, because it hasn't really been classified and, and segmented yet. So, for instance, when we say AI, it's such a broad subject. It's a broad sweeping subject. And, and uh, much like what we're going to talk about today, which is um, ITOT, which I have uh, um, yet to completely understand this, uh, uh, you know, all of this piece. I, I was taught ITOT, uh, IT of Operational Technology, essentially. Um, and we're going to get into that in a minute um, because I want to know more about the, the letters I'm saying. Also a recurring theme here. <laughs> right. So, but um, AI, such a broad subject. It's, it hasn't really been applied, but you were even kind of talking about it right there. You were saying, well, you have AI in this piece, you have AI in this piece, you have AI in this. And that's kind of, I think, why it keeps coming up because AI is touching so many different things that, and, and we haven't yet classified it and set, you know, and put it to the different items that we have. In fact, I think today, um, we, we're probably going to touch on it 
specifically when we talk about ITOT um, and uh, any fun new little acronyms that I learned along the way. So, so a, I think it's okay. I think I, I've come to terms with we can bring up AI as long as we're not talking about it in a very generalized sense, as long as we're we're taking it and, and attaching it to something so we can start to have those conversations and classify it. So I want to I want to quickly turn turn the page though on on AI. We will get right back into it. I guarantee it. Um because I want to start on this ITOT, right? Yep. We had we had um uh, um folks that don't know, I have a quick discussion. Uh, and, and not a long discussion, and Brian will attest to this, just a quick discussion up front uh, about, you know, kind of what we're going to go over, um, uh, just just so we can go over the page. But um, he uh, started talking to me about uh, ITOT uh, and uh, also CSE, Control Systems Engineering, uh, two very intersecting uh, um, items. And I know uh, I've had uh, actually a couple of friends uh, that have delved into uh, control systems and you should see their houses. They are this, I, I, it's like, listen, man, I have an Alexa and, uh, and to get that thing to work, I I'm always constantly having to reprogram things. And, and it, and I looked at like the code that it was just to ring a doorbell. Like, I mean, it's like, it's, if I ring my doorbell at 5 PM, I want it to turn on, you know, five different lights, make them a specific color, uh, run an led program to make them do a design. Then I want the thermostat to turn to a certain spot. And then, uh, you know, I want you to change. Like, it was like, I don't understand how you got this much time to program out your house. Like I can't, I don't have that. But so, Brian, bring us into the world of control <laughs> systems and, uh, and and help us understand this. Well, first of all, r- real quick, there's there's a common probably personality thread between your friends and myself. We all abide by the the, the notion of he who dies with the most toys wins. So <laughs> you look in my look in my garage, look in my cellar. I am exactly what you just said. I've got Google uh, everywhere. I can turn on my Christmas lights. I can. You name it. My my house is is wired for sound here. Um, I so, don't doubt it. <laughs> so I ITOT. That's where we're going, right? Yep. All right. So information technology. Everybody on on the podcast here probably knows a good deal about that. And from the office side of things. Um, now I'll back up a little bit. Um, I owned a business from 1998 to 2013 before going to work for Arthur G. Russell. And in that time, um, somewhere around 2004, I had many customers of mine. I was a control systems engineering, what's called system integration company. I took hardware and software, PLCs, programmable logic controllers, and put them all together to make things happen automatically on the factory floor. Um, as, as you're doing that, the customers start asking for reports. They start asking for screens. Somewhere between 2004 and 2007, I had several customers start asking me to connect the factory floor to the business system. Um, And what that means is I want to be able to take a work order from an ERP, pass it down to the the factory floor, have an operator pick what work order they they need to work on. When they select it on the HMI, the human machine interface screen, when they select it, it takes the work order takes all the recipe data from the work order and pushes it down to the process. And the PLC then starts to go to work on what it was asked to do. 
And as it's now running, it's gathering data of saying, how much current am I using on a mixer? Um, what is the weight in my hopper? What is So all of the things that go along with the, the process parameters and other things are being pulled and brought to a database. Now, back in 2007, we started doing uh, SQL Server uh, logging and reporting. We started pulling data uh, from the factory floor, putting it in a place. My first database was, oh my God, it was looked like an Excel flat file. I had no idea uh, about relational tables and schemas and all that. Um, that was one of the reasons I got my master's degree. I wanted to know how to do that right. Um, so, but I mean, customers were starting to ask for this. Okay, so here's the, in my opinion, the birth of IT and OT. A lot of the things that I just talked about, your IT people are going, yeah, I get it. I, I've got a, a, a Cat5 or Cat6-based network. I got routers. I got switches. I've got, what I did is I put what I called operation servers on each plant floor that was responsible for interfacing to a link table on something like a, a JD Edwards uh, AS400 system. I'd pull the uh, data, the work orders down to a local table. I'd have um, print servers built into this server. My database was in here. So all of the, these are all IT things, right? But the OT side now is the operational technology. I'm taking all the information as the factory is working, as the things are being built and mixed and baked and whatever, um, and all that information is going into a database. Then what you can do is after the fact, when the process is done, you can say, how much material did I use today? How much of this particular type of material did I use? How many rejects did I have? How long did it take to make? Um, how long was it before an operator acknowledged an alarm? All of those things are coming to light nowadays a lot more. But even back in 2007, customers were asking for this kind of stuff. Um, so the the birth, as I put it, um, of that kind of stuff is now called Industry 4.0 uh, is started for me as early as 2004. <clears throat> Give you a little bit of an, another anecdote, which is kind of cool. Somewhere around 2009, I think it was. I had just activated a cell card on my cell phone, coincidentally, that morning. One of my technicians and I were driving up. We were in New Hampshire at a customer's facility, starting up another machine. We're on our way home, and a customer who has a plant in Oregon called me up and said, hey, my laser printer is not etching on the bag. I'm, I'm sending the data, but it's not getting there. Can you help me? <clears throat> my technician's driving. I've got a new laptop with a new cell phone card in it, cell card. I open up the open up the computer. Cybersecurity was a little thinner back then. Logged on to their VPN that they gave me. They gave me access to certain areas. I logged on to the VPN. I wanned over from Connecticut to where I live, to um, Oregon. And because it was a system I put in, I recognized what IP addresses should be what. I started pinging around for the laser I started pinging around for the PLC and I got to a point where I could segregate. There was a switch that was bad. So I'm doing this driving 70 miles an hour. I'm sorry, 65 miles an hour down, down the highway. Um, and um, in the passenger seat, this in the passenger seat, yes, in the yes. passenger seat. <laughs> um, and I got to a point where I, I'm on the line with the guy and I, and I have my, my other cell phone, my cell phone, cell phone in my hand talking to him. And I tell him, I said, there's a little gray box on the, on the, on the bag or go open it up and see if there's lights on in it. 
He opens it up. There's not. Um, he, I said, go to your office. Do you have any like link six switches or anything like that? He goes, yeah, we got a spare one in a drawer. It's like an eight port. I said, perfect. Um, so he grabbed an extension cord, plugged the Linksys uh, switch into the um, into the extension cord, unplugged all the Cat fives, plugged it in. I said, try it again. Wham! Started working. He was able to uh, start running his product again. Driving down the highway within 15 minutes, I solved the problem across the continent using a combination of ITOT structure. Wow! Wow! I I, I mean, and that's. It, it's amazing, uh, um, and that's and that was qu- quite a while ago. Yes, correct. Yeah, that's what makes the story pretty pretty remarkable, right? Because this is before. Because right now, I mean, we can do that, but you know, because you've got cloud and you can tie it in with, uh, you know, you can tie it in and connect in over here, and you can even connect the MSP. Uh, you, you, sorry, you can even connect the um, uh, uh, the uh, you know on premise systems. Yep. Uh, right. Uh, with the uh, um you know, with the systems uh, that are in the cloud as well. Yep. But yep. back then, that wasn't a thing. No. You know, you were creating your own <laughs> way yep. to get over there. And uh, um, and and just the ability to be able to kind of see that, uh, you know, uh, connected in <laughs> from so far away during that time, it, 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 that is a pretty remarkable uh, story. Um, I, it, it, I'm, by the way, uh, to catch everyone up, I, again, we've learned new th- new uh, things. We've got new letters. There's PLC, Programmable Logic Controllers, right, and HMI, Human Machine Interface, right. These are these are new uh, uh, new ones to me. Um, I did think I knew about knew the PLC, but um, you know, I haven't worked with much of it to to know. So this is pretty interesting stuff. Now, let me ask you a question. Um, you know, I, I've been in IT for quite a while, but um, you know, I've heard of this stuff but i haven't really put it together um and i'm just sitting here thinking <laughs> if i'm uh uh you know uh, you know been around the block in it and, and various different things and even been in, uh, uh and done some stuff in manufacturing um with erps that uh, you know so if i haven't heard of this stuff in in some of the detail that that you're describing um have other uh, like, uh, is this a problem of other people not? Uh, I mean, is this something that you can find in 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 colleges? No, no, you you, it, you hit on a hot button topic of mine. Um, <clears throat> so everybody ha- knows what a double E is, uh, electrical engineer. They know what a chemi is. Um, and in in my industry and what I do for a living, it's a blend of a couple skill sets. It's a blend of electrical engineering and computer science in terms of programming and networking and IT. So it's like two or three skill sets. I'm not saying we're experts in every one, but we have to have knowledge of these at at some professional level to be able to implement them. So um, you, you go into any of these programs, you go into a double E program and you'll get the, some of the hard, you'll get the hardware aspect of it, the design of the hardware. And you'll get some coding and you may know what object oriented code is, but maybe not how to implement it completely. Then you go to, or, or you go to a computer science, computer engineering, and you'll get a lot of the coding side, but you won't understand the industrial hardware side. Um, then you got the whole ITOT thing again. And none of these programs, they may have a basic networking class, which will be good. Don't get me wrong. That's great. You need to have that. But all of these things together 
don't exist. So anybody in my field, there is, I, I do presentations around the country um, for industry 4.0. And one of the slides brings up a, a workforce uh, shortage and a skills gap. And it's something like, if you look at the professional and engineering aspect, it's something like 40 or 50% of the open jobs right now are in the in the manufacturing professional engineering aspect. And it's because there's a large skills gap. Um, so what's happening is, is it, as the baby boomers are retiring off and this acquired experiential skill set is, is leaving us, um, there's not any way to fill up the, the funnel, if you will. So I've gone to... Um, a couple of universities. I'm an advisor uh, to universities. I teach at the University of Hartford. Um, and I am trying to bring this automation skill set, this ITOT skill set, the things that kind of surround industry 4.0, trying to bring that to, to industry. So it, yeah, there's not. And, and here's the hard part. When you grew up in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and somebody said an industrial environment, the first thing that pops into your head is dirty, dank, and uh, dangerous. Um, and you know, it's dirty. It's, I am going to get dirty working in greasy pits and stuff like that. It's dangerous. I might have presses banging all over the place. Um, and it's, you know, dank and, and dreary. That is not the case at all, but that's the, um, that's the, the view that a lot of people have, uh, especially the mothers and fathers of people that grew up in the 60s, 70s and 80s who now have kids going to college. And they want them to get a good job. They want them to um, to utilize their skill sets and everything. And they don't know what control systems engineering is. They don't know what IT and OT is. They do know what EE is and, again, chemi and things like that. So the hardest part of all this, I hate to say it, marketing. We've got to figure out a way to take everything I just talked about and bring this to light so that that the parents out there will talk to them about their kids. The kids will go to the guidance counselors. The guidance counselors have to be knowledgeable of, of this stuff in order to start the pipeline uh, to be full and getting full with people that will replace people like me. Well, I, you know, is, there's so much packed into, <laughs> into what you just said there. And um, wow, I, let's start with the fact that, um, I, I, and I think you hit on it, that some of the uh, um, generation that uh, is saying, "Hey, you know, I want you to go out and get your uh, get your degree and stuff like that," and then some, you know, and and they look at a a manufacturing job or an industrial job, and they're like, "Well, no, no, go into services, go into you know something else." Um, but you know, ha having worked both, right? Um, they all they both come with their just interesting uh <laughs> interesting pieces to them um manufacturing is uh um is is very tangible that's one of the things i loved about manufacturing right there's a very tangible quality to it services not so much <laughs> you know um but uh but also the the giddiness of walking on a floor and watching something get produced i mean <laughs> It was so cool. Like, it, 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 it was, and it was so neat. Like, this is a thing that, like, I, I always thought it's like, I do IT and I watch a thing get made. Right. And part of what I'm doing helps do that. You know, yep. that's what to me was the most remarkable piece of it. 
because oh, everyone just- has a piece in the cog and you're actually building and making something, which is, you know, that right there. Why is why is that so hard to market? Oh, you're absolutely right. It's not, it's an unknown. I mean, it's just, it's a, I don't want to say relatively new. It's not really, but the merging of all these skill sets is relatively new. I mean, this kind of stuff is, has been around for a while. Going back to what you said, um, when I, when I, one of the classes I, I teach is automation systems. And, um, some of the students, I, I walk up and I say, look, you're going to be doing a lot of paperwork. You're going to be doing a lot of design. A lot of programming, a lot of late nights getting this stuff debugged and working. But I'm going to promise you something. The minute you walk up and you press the start button and the machine does what it's supposed to do, what you programmed it to do, and it starts running, there's no better feeling in the world. Um, and I'm a little bit at an, of an advantage because I can cherry pick the students um, that I had in my class and, and have them come to work for me. So uh, one of my one of my better students I had, I asked him. Um, I actually brought him in. He was teaching a lab for me at the class, and we were in class one day. And I and I said to him, I said, "Tell tell the students what 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 I told you about having the best feeling in the world." He kind of reiterated what I said, and I said, "What's your feeling on that?" And he says, "Absolutely true." So what what you said, Michael, is absolutely true. There's no better feeling than the watching something that you put all that effort in coming to life. And, and, um, and there's also another piece to it. Right. And I think the other piece is um, we've come a long way in terms of automation. Um, and man, I have seen some robots on these floors yep. do things that, I mean, you just sit there and watch them and as they swirl around and like arms, they have arms and grip things and put and yep. and you're like, how is that even? I, it's such a graceful movement. It's almost an art form to sit there and watch these things move in such a way. Um, yeah. it, it, it's it's beautiful. It's uh, dare I say sexy, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and that's why I say I don't understand why it's hard to market it, and except maybe because the stigma uh, right. of the old industrial and yeah. the old manufacturing still exists. You know, in which. Hey, get yourself out of a, uh, you know, a, 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 a blue collar job and into a white collar job. Right. And that's, but that's not the case anymore. Right. Uh, that's, that really, that doesn't really exist. I mean, there's people that, uh, um, that make tangible things and there's other people that sell things that are not tangible. And, uh, and, you know, those are, those are essentially what you're working in. <laughs> One or the other. You're, you're either making something or you're selling something that is, uh, you know, is, is vapor, right? But, um, <laughs> but, but does something, right? But that's what's remarkable about it is this is actually a physical thing and it is really, really, uh, um, really, really fascinating to see all the different, different pieces. I get it. I, st- I get excited like a, like I'm in a, a school. Again, uh, like I'm uh, in elementary school, seeing something for the first time, I get excited when I walk onto a manufacturing floor because you just never know what you're going to see. Yep, no, that's absolutely true. It it um, the the Made in America show kind of brought some of that to life, and uh, I I work for a company that does exactly that. We do automated assembly systems and and packaging systems that um, if you need something put together at slow speed, at medium speed, at high speed. We take all the discrete components and put them together for you. Um, and that takes robots. It takes servos. It takes PLCs. 
computers. I started putting computers, embedded computers on every machine with software to analyze data and things like that. So yeah, absolutely true. You're, you're really kind of taking something and um, bringing something to life. Yeah. It, you had mentioned in there a little bit about um, uh, debugging, right? Yes. And, um, uh, you know, anybody that has uh, um, stayed up way, way, way past their required bedtime uh, to code something because and try to fix something because it won't work uh, and because they keep debugging it and it's still there and everything like that. Um, there is a... Um, there, there maybe is, I, I would have to say there's an art form to debugging. There's a science to debugging. Um, uh, th- I'm not good at it. Uh, I sit there, you know, <laughs> I sit there and, and uh, I, I essentially am just like, no, I, I'm going to, I'm just going to comment out this whole section and just start working this one spot and see if this works. Okay. Now that works great. All right, let's go to the other one. And I just <laughs> keep, you know, but let me find the section that it, it's dying at. Um, put flags everywhere and have it create a little, uh, file so that I, or a little section. So I know it got to one spot or another, but, um, it, to me, it feels, it feels random. It, it, it feels like it's, um, it, like there's not a, uh, um, a science to it, probably because I'm not, uh, doing it correctly. <laughs> <laughs> You're not used to doing it, maybe. <laughs> So I guess tell us a little bit about debugging and uh and and what the um you know what what surrounds the art form to it. What you know what is the the process because and the one thing I just want to kind of get clear on why I'm interested in this topic is because uh it, it's the measure twice cut once uh theory, right? Um it, and uh, I read an article that you had linked to. Um and in that article I had talked about um essentially uh um making sure that the what you, you what you're producing and i'm paraphrasing here but what you're making producing or everything is actually meets the actual design requirements uh and, and and they're linking those together which i also think when you back up for a minute and talk about project um just general project management um that's always the goal right you know did we create did we perform and do the thing that that we we said we were going to do or did we scope creep and and just create something completely different right yeah and and uh the whole debug essence that you're talking about yeah you're absolutely right um there was another article i'm not sure if that's the one you were talking about there's one that was just released a couple weeks ago that they interviewed me talking about uh debug methods coincidentally um and it was talking about okay and it might have been the same article but you were talking about starting off with urs was that an assembly Yes, Assembly Magazine. Yeah, it was yep. the same article. Okay. Um, we start off with a URS, like you talked about, or user requirement, the spec. We got What's a new one. Different? You got a new one, everybody. <laughs> URS. URS. Um, yeah, acronyms are us. Um, so you start off with that, and you that becomes your your design guide of how, how things should flow. It, it will have in there um, things like, you will use this brand XYZ. You won't use brand uh, W. And oh, by the way, you have to program in this methodology. Uh, you can't program in this way. You can't use flowcharts or or structured text. You have to use ladder logic and blah, blah, blah. And they, they kind of spell out the way that their plant runs 
and you've got to adapt to it. So that's kind of the beginning of everything. And once you go through the whole design aspect, um, there's checks and balances that go along with that as well. The way that we do it right now is we're we're trying to minimize the amount of um, errors, if you will, that make it to the to the uh, floor where things are built. So I I do a third eye set of eyes for checking. So somebody will design it, somebody will draw it, two separate eyes, and then somebody who will compare the bill of materials and the the drawing, the design aspect. A third person will say, "Yep, everything matches. Good, release to the floor." So three. Does that have to be a person? Um, right now it does. Yes. Um, I, I can see where you're going. Cause yes, at, in, in the future, there's really a way you could, you could code that out for sure. Yes. There you go. And then from there, okay. Then somebody builds it, they wire it, they program it. And the programming again is, um, kind of a guided functionality from the customer number one and the needs of what the mechanical engineers have designed. We've got to animate it and automate it. So we write the code that animates the mechanical structures. Um, and then from there, the electricians wire everything together. And then we go through uh, in that article, we talked. I talked about a systematic checklist where you go through, all right, here's my all my inputs and outputs. If I, if I fire an output, does the proper thing happen? Yes. Um, a switch was made. Does that happen? Yes. It's supposed to trigger an alarm that you program. Does the alarm happen? Yes. So you go through inputs, outputs, alarms, info messages. So systematically working your way through the design, through the programming to the point where now you bring back in other trades and um, the mechanical uh, assembly guys that will actually now start working with you to make the bring the machine up to uh, production where you're actually starting to make something. Um, just to kind of give everybody here listening a quick idea, if you were to take a ballpoint pen, a click pen that you have on your desk, and you were to take it and spin it apart and put all the basic components on your desk, you'll probably end up with like six or seven components, the spring, the nib, the little clicky thing, the barrel on the bottom, the, the top, all of that. Now, you would what we do is we take all those discrete components and assemble them in high throughput or low throughput or whatever the customer needs. If they want to do 10 a minute, we do it. We've gone up to 1,800 a minute. Um, and we do that by doing many at once. Um, I might, every cycle of our machine may build something like 30 or 40 of that this assembly. In this case, we're talking about a pen. Um, so all of these things are electromechanical. Now, going back to the whole ITOT thing, everything kind of comes together here. PLCs are all Ethernet networked. Um, all the touchscreen HMIs, they're all networked. All the encoders that run the machines are Ethernet networked. Um, so you you, you kind of see now that there's a level of IT technology, the whole, I, I need to know how to put switches and routers and uh, NAT devices on the floor um, so that it runs my automation equipment. And then I have to put a gateway on there that takes the data that uh, the machine generates and brings it up through the double doors. And we'll talk about that in a second um, and brings it to the other side where people can do some work on the uh, on the data. So there's the kind of the combination of everything. It's it's systematic, starting with the URS, working its way through a design specification, going through through IO checks, debugging. Um, and then the whole debugging part of it that you talked about with software, um, you hit it on the head. I mean, you you do it in modules 
and you bring each module online. If there's a problem, you cut the problem in half and then work on the half that's not working and keep doing that until you get to a point where you've isolated it and go from there. Yeah, but you said it much better. (laughs) (laughs) I, I, that's so, so incredibly interesting. It's, it's amazing because you're forced uh, to have to sit there and make sure that all of the T's are crossed, all the I's are dotted. If you do not, it's not going to work at all. Uh, Everything has to work. Um, You know, but it, but it's an interesting concept because you have to build that into your time. Right. And I do feel like sometimes um, uh, when projects happen that don't require uh, um, anything having to do with uh, um, (laughs) operational technology or control systems, uh, you know, um, they don't go through those rigorous tests. You know, they don't go through those. They, uh, hey, just get it about 80 percent of the way there and and, uh, we'll fix it on the way. Right. But you don't have that. You can't no. do that. You can't fix it on the way. I mean, you're sending through, uh, you know, how many, <laughs> how many at once, right? Did you say oh, you're sending through? Four, uh, 48 every cycle, 18. Yeah. 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 You can't fix something on the fly. That's, that's running like that. I mean, you, you know, you'd have such a high error rate uh, or it just wouldn't work. So, yep. so it's actually pretty remarkable. You're actually forced into this um, uh, methodology that really everybody should be using, but uh, you know, the, um, you know, the, the requirements to do other types of, you know, IT work, um, don't match up with having to do it a hundred percent, mainly because they, you know, it's, it's about time. It's about get it in, get in quickly. We, we'll fix it as we're going. Right. And you see this and you, it, that's, that's infrastructure, right? Uh, infrastructure is, uh, um, build the road while it's still, still there, you know, and, uh, just build around it, make another lane, let them go this way while we fix this thing and then push them back. So there's a, there's an art form to infrastructure and, uh, and it happens to be having to do things, uh, um, you know, probably not the most prettiest way to get them done sometimes, but they have to do it. But, oh, wow, to do op, this operational, uh, technology and control systems, it, you have to, you really have to have, uh, um, all of your stuff planned out and, uh, and have your tests, uh, um, and checks to be set to be able to do this correctly. And, right. and thank you for, um, explaining debugging in such a, uh, a beautiful manner. <laughs> it actually sounds really, really good the way you did it. I, I, I'm going to, I'm like, I'm adding that into my brain now. Right. So, yeah. wow. Um, there, there's so much, uh, um, you, t- so you, you talked a few times about industry 4.0. Yes. Hey, tell us a little about about Industry 4.0. All right. So back in like my- what happened to one, two, and three? <laughs> Is five coming out? Like what's happening uh, there? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. The the quick primer. Industry 1.0, also known as the Industrial Revolution, somewhere in the 1700s. Um, things were mechanized. Eli Whitney with the cotton gin, Samuel Colt uh, with the firearm, things like that. Uh, interchangeable parts, mechanizing things. Then Industry 2.0. Um, later came where this was more of the Henry Fords of the world, where you took the idea of interchangeable parts and mass production and you put them on conveyor systems. And then uh, you start mass producing uh, things uh, in various plants and across plants. Industry 3.0 is where kind of everybody listening here, I'm guessing, grew up 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, where you start applying electronic controls 
and uh, control systems and computers, the cyber physical, as it's called, to the factory floor. Um, now you're actually taking in generating data during that period of Industry 3.0. You generated data, were able to do reports, but that's about the extent of what you could do. Here comes Industry 4.0. It, it it's made up. Uh, it was first kind of devised in uh, and announced at a Hanover Fair in Germany in 2011. It was kind of that doesn't surprise me. That's that kind of crime. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it was uh, when I talked to you about two, what, what happened to me in 2007, that takes into account several segments, several aspects of Industry 4.0. There's nine accepted pillars of Industry 4.0, augmented reality, systems integration, cloud computing, big data, industrial internet of things, 3D printing, uh, cybersecurity, We'll talk about that, I'm sure. Autonomous robots and modeling and simulation. Those are the nine accepted pillars that pretty much there are sometimes you'll see uh, 11 and things like that, but those are kind of the nine accepted pillars. Um, this is literally taking everything. This is where IT and OT really breathe and live now because I'm taking stuff from the factory floor. I'm taking sensors, um, controllers. I'm taking rudimentary devices on the floor. If anybody here has heard of things like IO link or even Wi-Fi or Bluetooth sensing, wireless sensing, bringing that to some gateway, getting that information from a gateway up through to a layer where it's controlled. From there, it goes up to a layer where it's kind of concentrated. And then from there, it brought up to the ERP system. Now, with all that information, the whole kind of goal of all this is to take an autonomously bring information from the ERP down to the factory floor, take the information from the factory floor, feed it back to your planning stages. I need to produce this because I have low inventory here. Um, and all this data in interconnectivity is where this comes from. Then you bring it to a level where now if you've got it in an ERP system and you're connected to both your value stream up and down where you've got your vendors and your customers, you can tell the customer can look at your system and tell how long something it might take to deliver or build, or if it's in stock. Some of all these components already exist. Don't get me wrong. But now this whole thing is being a lot more autonomous, a lot more automated. Um, and all the things that I had mentioned, the, all of the, the nine segments um, kind of come into effect. Augmented reality is used for support, um, being able to remotely support and keep the downtime down from a, for a machine. Systems integration is what we talked about, taking data, bringing it up, and bringing it through the ERP up to the vendors and to the customers. Cloud computing, being able to take your data from the factory floor, bring it up, do some work on it in the, in the cloud, leverage the cloud structure, leverage the uh, all the servers that are around the, around the globe. Uh, big data. Uh, big data analytics, talking AI again. Um, that's where a lot of this comes from. Back in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, I could grab data, couldn't do anything with it. With the advent of low-cost, high-speed computers, I can now do a lot more with it. I can run it through AI engines. I've got all this data. I can train models. I can look at um, what that might mean for future stuff and Hopefully, we come back to that in a second. Then there's the IIoT, the Industrial Internet of Things. Um, that's taking sensors, adding sensors that bring not only information about key process indicating variables, KPIV, here's another one for you, um, up to, um, to 
you go from from there, the you're also looking at machine health. Why is a machine drawing more current than it used to? Why is it consuming more air? What is my bottleneck? Why is one of my stations running slow? All those sensors feed into that information. Then there's 3D printing. 3D printing is not what you and I kind of think of. Well, to, to a degree it is. But again, it's taking information from like an ERP saying, hey, I need 300 of Model XYZ made. This fleet of 3D printers over here are going to do that. So these the 3D printers start working. Um, then there's autonomous robots in the same vein. Um, if I've got a fleet of robots, I can do quick tool changes. I can do expedited manners of changeover for new products. Cybersecurity, you can see that everything I've talked about now is taking data from the floor, running it through the enterprise up to the cloud. Guess what? I just opened up my enterprise to the cloud. Now I've got to have some level of cybersecurity to be able to protect my data and my hardware on the floor. Um, and the last one is modeling and simulation. That's um, There's a couple names for that. One of them is the digital twin. Um, one way to look at that is if I design something in SolidWorks or a mechanical um, set of software that represents the physics model of how a machine is built, and then I take my PLC programming and I take that and I marry those two together in a software package, I can literally do a digital twin of that machine. I can run the machine offline on a computer while the real computer is off on the floor running. If somebody says, you know what, I want to make a change because I think I can get 3% more out output out of this. They make the change in the computer. They change the code in the PLC in the computer, run it on the computer, prove it out, then bring it to the machine before the machine has to go down. It's like a, uh, it's virtual modeling. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. So wow. I know I've talked a lot real quick, but that's um, that's what Industry 4.0 is. Industry 5.0 is more humans working alongside the cyber physical part. It's people are starting to talk about it. It's still a long way away. We, I don't know if anybody's done um, marketing or anything like that or read the book uh, Crossing the Chasm, where they talk about the standard normal curve. Uh, of marketing where you have the early adopters, the early, uh, early, uh, um, the laggards and things like that. And th in a lot of these marketing things, you have this thing called a chasm where people aren't quite jumping yet. You got the people, the early adopters who have invested a lot of money and want to do it because it's cool. Once they're successful, then you've got the people jumping the chasm and starting to adopt it. Um, we're at, in my opinion, we're at or just over the other side of the chasm and it's just, starting to get industry 4.0 adopted in a more general sense industry 4.0 or 5.0 4.0 is still in its infancy quite it's been developed it's been talked about you're still dealing with 60s 70s machines on the floor um so there's a lot of things that need to happen on the floor to, to really get a whole company <clears throat> yeah on the bandwagon in, in in previous uh uh podcasts we've actually touched on the cybersecurity um, concerns uh, with the um, inability to upgrade some of the uh, the devices that have been there forever. Hey, we bought this device a long time ago. It does this one thing. It can still do the one thing, but it runs off, uh, you know, uh, Windows three point one, and I can't, <laughs> you know, and I can't upgrade it. Right. I mean, but I mean, we joke, but there are there there are some seriously old machines still running uh, these things or 
not just uh, um, old, proprietary, yep. right? Yep. And only one person knows how to do it, and they're off in, uh, um, you know, vacationing in in uh, in a fun little place, you know, drinking martinis or something. I don't know. It, this is what this is the the reality of uh, of what happens here, and um, and cybersecurity needs to be done at a level of when people are building things, right? Because if you try to just interject it in afterwards, uh, then you don't get uh, um, that seamless, you don't get the, that, uh, you know, that seamless, uh, working, uh, workings yeah, of it. So what you, yeah. Cause you're, you're just, you're like, oh yeah. And then put, put, give it a cybersecurity package and move on. I mean, that, it, that doesn't really seem like that works too, all too well. That's why, that's why, uh, when people code things and develop things, uh, um, cybersecurity is built in along with it. Right. What does it need to do? Okay. Now, now make sure you build that into the system. Uh, and, uh, and it's the same thing with, uh, when, when we build infrastructure as well, the same kind of concept when you build cloud. Um, uh, and so I, I want to ask about this because there are precise components to, uh, to these things. We're talking about these programmable logic controllers, right? What yep. PLC, uh, right? We're talking about these PLCs. Um, uh, great. I can, uh, I can protect the network. I can protect all this stuff, but I, let me get down to the actual PLC. Uh, are people trying to hack that? Yes. Uh, actually there was some success as early as 2010. I think the, the somewhere around that area, there was a virus called Stuxnet. Um, and it was aimed specifically at industrial components. And, um, it was kind of a, a wake up call for a lot of people. To, and to your point, it's like, Hey, I got cybersecurity on the IT side. I, I've got my servers protected. I don't care what goes on on the floor. And um, there's a lot of things. I mean, we deal, our machines deal with produ production. And if it crashed, it would hurt a company's revenue. It's not going to kill anybody um, or make people starve or, you know, blow up things. It's just going to, it's going to stop making product. But this same thing, PLCs exist in gas plants and power plants um you know you name it so if you if you don't protect those assets in a way that um would vitally stop people from uh, penetrating it yeah you could have some serious serious concerns so yes yeah, so cybersecurity is is something that's i don't want to say up and coming it's here it has to be um believe, uh one of the societies the organizations i belong to the international society of automation isa um, they partnered with the IEC, uh, and they've got a standard cybersecurity standard, 62443, I think it is. And it kind of dictates what this looks like from an industrial environment, how to put together your network. And they take the approach that they do, I guess you could call them blast zones. So you compartmentalize areas. So something does go wrong, it's compartmentalized. It's not going to uh, go free and wild. Um, and that's kind of the the approach that's taken with that. Interesting. Um, <clears throat> you you look at um, possible reasons why people wouldn't want to implement this, and then and, and there's a couple, right? I mean, you, you've we've already implemented it. Now we have to go back and replace PLCs and and reprogram them, and it's a lot of work and all this stuff. But then on top of that, too, there's an overhead to security. Uh, yes. which could reduce uh, production. Yes. 
Yeah, I mean, even to your point, if if I had to take the time to put in to change out something that for the cybersecurity aspect, while I'm doing that, I'm not making production. So it's kind of a twofold thing. You know, I've got the expense of the equipment that I have to put in, but I'm stopping my production while I'm doing it too. So yeah, there there's several reasons why you would want to do it. Yeah, there is overhead that goes along with it. Some of which is people um, being able to understand. I, again, we're, we're harping on the IT, OT crossover where you have skill sets that cross, but there's people that are involved with that, that understand this crossover and can support the equipment, both on the IT infrastructure and the OT side. So if if I were able to jump in and um, and, and get into a controller, right, could I crawl my way in into the network at all? I mean, yes. that's the... Yeah, so that's the and and I believe it's the case because you can crawl your way uh, from the network into the controller, right? Yeah. So and and you can exchange data with it. So anytime you can do exchange ones and zeros with something, you can hack it, right? Yeah. Yep. So, I, so I guess um, if that's the case, then companies uh, should worry about their data, right? Uh, um, and they should start worrying about the controllers, uh, uh, you know, these PLCs that are sitting out there that are not. Uh, um, tell me a little bit, by the way, about HMI, uh, the human machine interface real quick. They're um, essentially touchscreen computers, whether they're PCs or, or embedded piece, uh, computers, but they're essentially uh, touchscreen devices. A lot of them have standardized software um, that you you basically program displays, push buttons, dials, um, sliders. The graphical interface that people need to run a machine is what an HMI is. It has a lot of, it can have a lot of recipe functionality where I'm, I can pull information. It can have data logging functionality. Um, there's a lot of things that go along with it, but it's essentially the, the interface device, just like it says human machine interface. It's, it allows a human to touch parts of the machine through this interface. So, um, most of the times I've seen some things like this, they've been, uh, uh, you know, they've been pretty locked down. Like this is, you know, you only hit these buttons to do these one things. And, and it looks like they're programmed specifically for the thing that they're, they're trying to do. Correct. Um, yeah. however, someone has to program that, right. And that yep. program can be altered. Correct. Right. Um, do they, when you get up to these HMIs, do a lot of them have logins or do they are just open and ready to do their thing? Depends on the year. No, um, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> quite, quite literally, uh, yes, yes and no, uh, depending on if the, if it's a standalone, if it's an isolated island where the machine is on the floor by itself doing its own thing, there's no need. Um, at that point, you still have the ability to program operator levels. I don't want an operator changing set points, let's say. So I will build in programming levels, operator levels. I'm sorry, pro, uh, password levels. That allow different areas of uh, being. They some people can do maintenance on the machine. Some people can't. Operators are only allowed to hit start and stop. So there's different levels of that. Um, yeah. So to your point, you're if it's an isolated standalone thing, you're um, you don't necessarily need it. You would want to have those le- uh, layers in there to be able to protect the machine. When you put it on a network, it becomes even more so. Um, you want only certain people who understand the dangers, I guess, if you will, of going deep into the program to be able to do it. So 
Um, again, operators only have cursory levels of of, of uh, operation and control. So really, the um, the big piece is whether or not these are connected into the network. Yes, and exchanging data uh, um, because if they are, then they can become an entry point, uh, yeah. or you know where somebody can. And even remotely get to them because you've already proven that that can be the case, no. uh, especially if it's connected to the cloud. Right. Then, <laughs> you know, then there you go. Uh, if you can use that a computer as an entry point, then you can use it to uh, um, to infiltrate the system and and grab data and then extract the data out of the system again. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, um, since PLCs seem to be very good at running things uh in a specific order and doing things a certain way it seems like a perfect way to even just hide a uh um hide a program yep you can certainly do that yep yeah there um there's going going back to your your point on going to the cloud um from the cybersecurity aspect if you look at it data should be flowing up to the cloud and if you want to access the data from the cloud, you should be coming in from a layer that just allows you access to that data on the cloud. So you got outbound traffic coming from the PLC, from the factory floor, going up through to the cloud for analytics, for storage, things like that. And while the data is up there, I can take a PC and then hit the data up in the cloud. No need for me to go down to the floor. So if I'm looking just from the data standpoint, and that's where a lot of this configuration comes in. If I'm looking just from the data standpoint, part of the cybersecurity is access levels, where who's touching what, where are things going. Um, but I have opened a gateway. Um, in my case, what I just said, it's an outbound gateway, but that can be broke too, right? I mean, if somebody's good enough, they can figure out a way to do it. So yeah, there's certain certainly a concern that you have to you have to consider when you're doing this. I, I think I um I you know, I think if if that's if if we haven't you know connected these items to uh logging centralized logging with a uh um with a backend seam and a and a 24/7 sock sitting there watching what's happening there's still a, a very big uh, opening there from a threat standpoint that's uh, right i mean i really i really think from a manufacturing standpoint um uh folks ought to be thinking about some of the the standard items that that uh um healthcare companies and financial companies do <laughs> you know because a lot of those times you know you don't have and this is the trouble right is that sometimes you have big manufacturing uh companies and that's great but other times you have small mom and pop manufacturing companies and they don't have a lot of the resources to be able to um uh, implement a lot of this stuff especially uh, you know, uh, investing in a um, in a centralized logging seam uh, um, and uh, and sock in the back end um, to them, that seems like that's a um, that's a tough order. Yeah, um, there's there's industrial ways, quote unquote, to get around that. If you want, I don't want to say get around that; it's not the right way um, to implement it so that you can you can gain access to it securely. There are devices out there called one of them. One brand that I happen to use is E One E W O N. Uh, it's a company that makes industrial VPNs, and it's it's an out, outbound ping that just constantly pings a secure website and just says, I'm alive, I'm alive, I'm alive. And then only certain people have access, and people who are granted access have access to that, to that cloud site. And then what will happen is, is me, when I have my client on my side, I ping the cloud, 
as well saying, okay, I'm here. I want to talk to IP address, blah, blah, blah. It goes across the network. We meet in the cloud. We negotiate in the cloud. Then I come down and there's one other, a couple other levels of security, but one of them is physical. I've got a key switch that will kill the enable circuit on the, on the E1. I only can get access to that machine when somebody has asked me to gain access to that machine. So they walk up, turn a key switch. I have access to it. There's outbound traffic from the E1 saying I'm alive. There's no inbound um, at that point. We, we meet in the cloud, negotiate. My credentials are accepted. I now have a VPN tunnel to this device. And now I can gain access to my, my PLCs, my vision systems, my HMIs, all of that as if I was plugged into it at the machine itself. What I love about what I love about that implementation is it means that you have to use two different attack methods, which is one, you have to gain credentials and two, you have to use social engineering. So to, to be able to mix those two together to actually gain access, which is very difficult. Right. So that's a, I mean, it, it's possible, but the, the harder you make, that's the, the goal of, of security is to be harder to, to implement than the other X person, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> yep. yeah. oh, this house has cameras. I'll go to the next one. Right. So, <laughs> uh, you know, and cause I mean, you can never be fully secure, but you can, uh, you know, you can keep adding to your arsenal to make it harder and harder to get that. You can reduce that risk and mitigate that risk down. Um, right. But yeah, I, I like the way that um, I like the way that that that's structured. Yeah, it, it it works. We still have customers that say, nope, it's connected to the internet. Nope, you can't have it. Um, so sometimes we have a couple of different ways around that. One of them is we ask the customer, keep a, keep a coil of Cat6 to your internet device nearby. If you need us, plug it in. And then when you're done, unplug it then you never have to worry about it. No physical connection, you're done. The other way is this, these cell, these same devices have cell data. So I can meet in the cloud. I don't have to hit any of their physical in- internet uh, infrastructure in their plant. I can just come in over the cell and hit the machine directly without hitting their network. So there's a couple, three ways to kind of implement this and keep it secure. Yeah, very nice. Very nice. Um, so we have... Uh, um, we've gone over a lot of things, uh, uh, so far and, um, we've learned a lot of things. We've learned, uh, ITOT, CSE, PLC, uh, HMI, URS, KPIV. I'm sure I lost a few in there, right? Uh, um, you know, I've got a, I've started a new brand new dictionary, uh, after this call. At Dissecting Popular IT Nerds, we expect to win and we expect our IT directors to win. And one of those areas where we know that we can help you win is internet service providers. As an IT director tasked with managing internet connectivity, few vendor relationships can prove more painfully frustrating than the one with your internet service provider. The array of challenges seems never ending from unreliable uptime and insufficient bandwidth to poor customer service and hidden fees. It's like getting stuck in rush hour traffic dealing with ISPs can try one's patience even on the best of days. So whether you are managing one location or a hundred locations, our back office support team and vendor partners are the best in the industry. And the best part about this is none of this will ever cost you a dime due to the partnership and the sponsors that we have behind the scenes at Dissecting Popular IT Nerds. Let us show you how we can manage away the mediocrity 
and hit it out of the park. We start by mapping all of the available fiber routes and we use our 1.2 billion in combined customer buying power in massive economy of scale to map all of your locations, to overcome construction fees, to use industry historical data, to encourage providers to compete for the lowest possible pricing, to negotiate the lowest rates guaranteed, and to provide fast response times in hours, not days. And we leverage aggregators and wholesale relationships to ensure you get the best possible pricing available in the marketplace. And on top of all of this, you get proactive network monitoring and proactive alerts so that you're not left calling 1-800-GO-POUND-SAND to enter in a ticket number and wonder, why is my internet connection down? In short, we are the partner that you have always wanted who understands your needs, your frustrations, and knows what you need without you having to ask. So we're still human, but we are some of the best and we aim to win. This all starts with a value discovery call where we find out what you have, why you have it, and what's on your roadmap. All you need to do is email internet at popularit.net and say, I want help managing all of my internet garbage. Please make my life easier and we'll get right on it for you. Have a wonderful day. Uh, let's go ahead and start our um, IT crystal ball and segment. And, 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 and when we do this... Um, Normally, I I kind of free for. Sometimes I'll be specific and kind of talk about um, the future of IT, and sometimes I just kind of free form, let people go run wild and 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 see what their imagination comes up with. But we've sort of kind of uh, already uh, figured oh out, I think, uh, where this one's going because um, you talked about and 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 we we we've touched on it a few times when we said data analytics, right? And in through the process, we've kind of sprinkled it through. Um, AI uh, is data analytics gone wild, right? I mean, it, it, it is what happens when you can just, you know, give a bunch of data to something that can actually make sense out of it, right? And actually has uh, enough of a pattern recognition. That's where we are right now, right? Right with with AGI, right? It's this. This is a um, pattern recognition. Uh, uh, you know, um, we're, we're basically, uh, we have figured out, uh, that when people do these things, that the, these are the next things that come so that we're going to fill it out uh, with that information. Um, uh, and, and this, like, we're like at the lowest spot of AI right at the moment. <laughs> it's like, you know, the, the lowest you can possibly be, which is just scary, uh, at, at just how good. Uh, this is and uh, and how fast it is exploded um, and it touches so many things. So we just we talked about all of these pieces that make up um, uh, ITOT and CSE and we talked about implementing them in and then we specifically kind of we touched a little bit on data analytics but we didn't really dabble completely into it and that was by design because I I, I knew that this end part of this uh, of this uh, um, podcast was going to specifically uh, um, hover around the future of IT with data analytics powered by AI, uh, right? That is essentially where we're going to go with this thing. And I, I think you and I are probably in agreement, right? Absolutely. Yep. <laughs> yep. I am um, just... I, Brian, I, I'm just going to let you talk <laughs> because I, I have no idea. I have ideas about where this could possibly go, um, and I'll interject when we do it, but I'm going to let you just start going uh, because I just want to see 
where we go with this. Okay. Well, there's already some predetermined paths. There's already some software out there. There's already ways and methods to do this. Um, but a lot more data needs to be collected and, and characterized, imputed, all of that um, cleaned up. Now, there's um, going back to what you had said, you hit it on the head. I, predictive analytics, predictive and preventative, uh, preventive maintenance. So um, imagine you're in a world where all of a sudden you get a little alert on your car that says within the next two weeks, you're going to lose the bearing on your right hand tire. You're still able to run. You got no issues, but now you can make an appointment. You can order the part. You can bring it to the dealer. You can get a rental car all on your time. You've got two weeks notice to be able to do this. Uh, that's all driven by data, data analytics, and the AI side of things. Um, there's there's software out there. There's methods out there to do exactly that. You take your we had talked about the whole industry 4.0 thing, taking data from the factory floor, taking machine data, taking KPIV, key processors indicating variables, bringing those in, flooding a repository full of data. And then something happens on your machine one day, you lose a motor. There's all sorts of data that surrounds that failure. There's temperature, there's flow, there's pressure. There's photo eyes that might have temperature sensors built into them for, for temperature compensation, and you happen to be reading that. There's vibration analysis sensors. All of these things are kind of built in, and you're sucking all this data up, and then you put it against a, a, a trigger. You say, on uh, December 1st, 2023, I had a bearing or a motor failure. What were the aspects of the data around that that might indicate that failure? And you take, now you have a training set of data. Everything that you've had in your past becomes now part of your historical training data. Now, in the future, you're running fat, dumb, and happy, just like the car scenario. And the AI engine sitting there now looking at the data real time. And it's looking for those same triggers, that same data signature and says, hmm, last time I saw the photo eye temperature rise by three degrees and I saw the vibration go uh, up to 73 hertz uh, and I saw a little bit more consumption. Anyway, you get the idea. When all of these variables come close or match to the limits of the last one, I can do that far enough in advance if I've got all the data that led up to that event and put up a flag well in time to say, you're about, Mr. Operator, you're about to have a failure. You've got an hour, a day, a year, a month, whatever that happens to be based on historical data, you say, okay, Mr. Maintenance Man, I need a motor that I'm going to have a failure. I'm going to need a motor. Do you have one in stock? If not, please order one. They order the motor. They have it available. You now gracefully bring the machine down. No downtime, no actual catastrophic failure that's happened. I haven't crashed two things together. I'm bringing the machine down gracefully. I schedule that in. Maybe there's other maintenance things I need to do. I schedule it. Then I fix the thing, bring it back online, bring it back up. No no catastrophic failures, minimal amount of downtime. This is all surrounded around this whole predictive and preventative uh, preventative maintenance that goes um, that's driven by AI engines. And it's it's there today. It's not used a lot because the the data is not quite there yet. Um, there's not a lot of people that have 
clean data. They've got disparate data all over the place in different formats, different schemas, different. And somebody's got to bring all that together, clean it up, characterize it, and then put it in a, in a method in a way that the AI um, engines, I use the word engine, uh, AI engines can look at it. I, I, I think you summed that up really well. And, um, and there's kind of a couple pieces that you can take from that. So the, the first one is if you're taking all this data and you're, uh, and you're logging it to be able to do all of these amazing, uh, um, automations and preventative, uh, work and, and, uh, um, kind of alert to things that haven't uh, happened yet, then essentially you're also, uh, take that data and uh and throw it against a, a cybersecurity framework uh so you can monitor it as well right i mean so there, it, there's the great part is is this ai requirement which is i need data right yeah. uh it is also a business requirement i need data um also meshes with the cybersecurity requirement of i need data right yep, exactly um, yep. and any good data that's the other thing you mentioned and and this is a a, a constant problem in a lot of organizations, um, because data is entered by humans, and <laughs> and uh, if you're and and we use computers to to make humans enter things the same way uh, all every single time. Otherwise, you will have uh, you know items yeah, that are entered in, in completely different uh, in different orders and in different spots. I mean, it, the idea for good data analytics is to make people enter data in the same way every single time. Uh, because not having clean data breaks everything. It breaks systems. It, uh, uh, in fact, um, you know, many attack vectors are used based on in injecting, uh, bad data into systems, right? So, so this is, is this is such an interesting, uh, problem. And I actually wonder now if AI, uh, um, can help us even cleanse that data appropriately, which, is kind of a is a question of do we want that to happen? Yeah, is that the is that the trip? Is that the edge? <laughs> <laughs> right, because if, if we're using AI to cleanse the data, um, and, and, you know that humans entered, right? You're, yeah. Now you're now you're like, okay, we're, we're going to clean the data. For, we're going to collect it. We're going to clean it, and then we're going to predict on it. And then now you're going, okay, well now I'm I've put all my eggs in one basket. Let's hope it doesn't. Uh, Let's hope that basket's uh, um, sturdy because if it if it's not giving me the right if it's not cleaning the data correctly if it's not uh, um, predicting the data correctly if it's if its patterns are way off which we all which we know right now the current AI uh, that exists um, dreams up uh, you know uh, and hallucinates <laughs> things all the time. I mean, even when I listen, I just the most basic one that everyone's going to understand is I type e I type an email. Right. And or I ask it something that I know is correct. And I ask it just to see if it and it, and it goes, yeah, it's this. And I'm like, no, it's not. You're wrong. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I'm I'm an AI. I'm just learning. <laughs> right. You know, <laughs> and it is, though. I mean, AI is fallible at the moment. And uh, um, and I don't know if it won't. Oh, I don't know in a case if it actually will ever be uh, not fallible uh uh um i i, I think it'll always be fallible uh yeah, um yeah. because you're training it because you, you're you ultimately we trained it on our data we trained it on ourselves right and 
even though it can improve on that, right? It's still improving on the data that we gave it to to enter in. So yeah, there's a no, there's a thought there. Yep. <laughs> no, you're right. I I guess you're always getting better too, right? There's always new technology generated, and as as you take that next step, that data that's generated needs to get learned and sucked into the system. So yeah, there always there's I think there's always going to be a a level of uh, being having it be fallible. Yep. Well. I think that that kind of gives us a good uh, um, a good outlook on the future, right? Uh, at least it makes us feel kind of nice that uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, you're always going to have to have a human look over uh, the AI that's trained on a human's uh, uh, <laughs> human's data. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to open the wor- can of worms of synthetic data. We'll leave that one alone. <laughs> oh, oops. oh no, oh no, <laughs> nerds! I'm Michael Moore. Uh, hosting this podcast for Dissecting Popular IT Nerds. I've been here with Brian Romano. Sorry, Dr. Brian (laughs) Romano, Director of Technology Development at the Arthur G. Russell Company Incorporated. Brian, thank you so much for being on. It was was an absolute pleasure and I learned a lot. Me too. Thank you very much for having me. It was great. (laughs) 